0: I'd like you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. uh, We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Jesus in the upper room. The disciples have gotten some startling news. John 14 verse 1 says... Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. I have some news for you this morning. This is something that we learned as a practical lesson while we were gone. There's no place like home. I I could say it two more times and tap my ruby slippers. Uh, But I'm I'm here to tell you, there's no place like home. We're we're glad to be here. We, 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 We saw and we did some incredible things. Some of you have been following some of the postings we put on Facebook, saw the pictures. The Lord moved powerfully during that time. It wasn't all about sightseeing. That was actually a very small part of our trip, but we really enjoyed uh, the things we saw and some of the things we did. But before we finish today, I I, want to tell you about some of those things and share some pictures with you. Hopefully we'll have some fun with it. But I want to tell you about some of the things that are going on in my heart uh, and in Kelly's heart. She's not here. She's down in Orlando with her with her mom. So we would appreciate your prayers on this. But the idea is that there's no place like home. And that, that turned out to be a bigger lesson than, than we thought it was. As a matter of fact, as Kelly and I were talking through that, um, we started talking about uh, a lot of things that we're doing and what uh, what's going on in the church, what's going on in our lives, and one of the constant things that came up was the uh, commentary that I'm doing called The Daily Bread. Some of you have been following it. Um, we send an email out. It's a daily Bible reading uh, with a summary and comments that go along with it. Um, a couple of people have asked me to shorten it because I, I have a tendency to get a little long-winded on that sometimes. Uh, But by the end of this year, by December 31st, uh, I've been working on this for three years. Uh, We will have a running commentary on the Bible, starting with Genesis, going all the way through Revelation. I'm not quite sure what we're going to do with it yet. It's a lot of material, and we'll probably just keep putting it out there on a daily basis to help those who are doing their daily Bible reading. Um, This year, we divided it up in the 66 sections. We start Acts tomorrow. Um, so if you have an interest in the book of Acts, you can follow us along as we comment on Acts, or you can just do the daily Bible reading and work your way through Acts. Uh, but uh, as Kelly and I were talking and praying about what we're going to do with this when we're done with it, she said, I don't know what you're going to do with it, but I know what you ought to call whatever you do. And I not know, well, what's that? She goes, you should call it bringing the children home, because that keeps on popping up. In your commentary about God bringing us home, well, it's true, because the the uh, the theme, the tact that, that, that we've taken on our Bible commentary is a biblical theology rather than a series of devotions about uh, what's going on in your heart. We're we're tracking the history, the story of redemption. The Bible starts out with Genesis and the Garden and creation. And God putting man in the garden gives him two rules to follow. He can't even follow the first one. And because man falls, he gets ejected from the garden. Well, the garden was his home. The garden was what God designed for him. And now he's been ejected from it. And everything from Genesis 3 on through the end of Revelation is the story of God redeeming his people and bringing them back home. So we have creation in Genesis 1 and 2. We have the new creation in Revelation. And the new home for His people and those who believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the integral, the central part of His plan of redemption, go to that new home. So, there's no place like home. And we've got a a new home waiting for us. Now, we've been away for for 90 days. Um, we uh, lived in a foreign country for 60 of those 90 days. Uh, that had its challenges. Uh, I got to tell you, it, it, you know, it, it, I, I, I don't even want to stand here and pretend that there was some hardship involved in living in France for 60 days. All right. Okay. Uh, we never got homesick. Yeah, we missed everybody. And we missed our immediate family. We missed our extended family. We certainly missed gathering together on a Sunday morning. But we never got that homesick. I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I've always had wanderlust in my heart. But I've had friends and close relatives that they get away from home for a day or two, and they start to get really agitated and upset because they want to go home. We never got homesick, and uh, we 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 were glad to come home. Um, I'll tell you, the, the primary reason we came home when we did, uh, because we were having such a wonderful time, uh, was we had a return ticket. <laughs> we had a, we had a, a, a two-way ticket. Uh, and that, that two-way ticket was our guarantee that we were going to come home. Um, and, you know, that, that, that turned out to be significant as well, but, but we had this guarantee that we'd come home on November 1st. Um, we could have spent more time, but you know what? We're glad to be home as well. But the, the, the challenge was being away from home. The challenge is being in a foreign land. We, we didn't speak the language. Matter of fact, what I had to learn how to say in the other language, I shared it with you last, last week, je ne parle pas français, uh, I don't speak French. <laughs> and yeah, that, that, that was a, a, the extent of a lot of conversations I had with French people. I don't speak French and they just go, oh, and then kind of walk away and that, that was it. So, we didn't speak the language, we didn't know the rules of the road. Every now and then you're driving down a road, you look at a sign, you have to I have no idea what that sign says. Okay, and the symbols are different, they've got circles and curly cues and so on and so forth, and, and I'm sure if you've driven in France for a long time, you know, oh, don't, you know, and I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> Stop, go, I don't, I don't know, turn left, turn right. We didn't know the rules of the road. We didn't know the the culture. I mean, what bonjour was hello. It was kind of like have a good day. But you know what? The day doesn't last all day long. At some point, the day turns into the evening in which you're supposed to say bonsoir. What time do you say bonsoir? We don't know you know i'm walking down the street at 5:30 you know everybody says bonjour everybody says bonjour it's like if, if if you and i are walking down the street and i say bonjour and you don't say bonjour i'm like bonjour okay so when does that change to bonsoir well 5:30 down the street i walk down the street I, I some guys walking the other way i go bonsoir it must be evening he went bonjour I don't know when it changes. <laughs> so we, we we didn't understand all the nuances of living there. And sometimes sometimes that was awkward, sometimes it was funny. But one of the things we had to learn was we had to learn to depend on each other and depend upon the Lord. And that's where the lessons came, at least for me. I gotta tell you something. God blessed us in a mighty way. He blessed us in a mighty way. Kelly and I go into France, we've got a great relationship. We've just been blessed with, with being close together. But but I gotta tell you something else. I don't slow down real easy. And and sometimes sometimes my wife has to grab me by the ears and go, you're not slowing down very easily. And and you know, we 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 did all of the sightseeing and everything. We were in Paris, we're in London, we're, we're doing this sort of thing, and but 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 she, she took me by the arm and she said, you know, I thought there was going to be more about us. And I'm like, yeah, but I, well, here we are. We're in Paris. We're in London. It's us, right? She goes, no, it's not. And so that, that first 10-day period or so, um, adjustments had to be made. And you know what it's like. You go on vacation. If, you, if you're blessed enough to have two weeks vacation, uh, you kind of need it because the first three or four days of vacation, you're just trying to slow down and enjoy your vacation. If you're only gone for a week. By the time you slow down, you got to pack up and go home. <laughs> and now you got another adjustment. Why well, don't make those adjustments easily? So that first 10 days or so was a struggle, not a threat, but it was just a struggle. And once we, once we slowed down and, and well, God started to bless our, our socks off. So with we, we had a good relationship at the beginning. With the help and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, we went deeper. Well, we saw some amazing sights. We did some amazing things. We were in Paris. Now, I, you know, I've heard a lot about Paris. That there are a lot of sights to see. I got to tell you something. That city captured my heart. I just love it. I'd go back like that. I, I I'd go back tomorrow the it, it it was just a beautiful city the people were beautiful it was just an enchanting city and our time there we saw the Eiffel Tower we saw the Louvre we saw Notre Dame we saw all that but just being in Paris and the architecture and the layout of the city and everything was just absolutely amazing we went to London Another amazing city. I got, I, I, you know, I think I've seen London. I'm not too terribly eager to go back. It was, it was a lot of fun. It, you know, we saw the, the London Tower, we saw the Tower Bridge, we saw London Bridge, we saw Windsor Castle, we saw uh, Buckingham Palace. Uh, you know, we, we we saw all the sites. It was absolutely fantastic. We went to Abbey Road. Now, those of you who grew up in the '60s you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Okay? Uh, it, it took about a half an hour of Kelly uh, shooting that picture to get me in the middle of the, the crosswalk that the Beatles walked in. We're right outside of Abbey Road Studios there. And what you don't see is on either side of that crosswalk are lines of people waiting to walk across so somebody can take their picture. They've got traffic lights, traffic cops, and everything. It's become such a thing to get your picture in. Well, that's mine. <laughs> that's mine. And so, you know, for me, uh, it just brought back a lot of memories of when I was uh, just a, a little bit younger than I am now. And so th- that was a lot of fun. From London, we went to Bath. Uh, bath is an ancient city, it goes back to the fourth, fifth century. Somewhere along the line, the Romans came in and turned it into a series of bath houses. I mean, it gets its name because that's where they went to take a bath. That was a great city. We, well, I met some friends that I've only been familiar with via Skype and email. I uh, got to meet them face-to-face, visited a little model factory. Uh, that was a great thing. When we were done in Bath for a day and a half, uh, we hopped on a train. We uh, got on a Euro rail and went through the tunnel and uh, went back to Paris, transferred trains, and ended up in Banalek, Brittany. Now this is the little village that we spent most of our time. So all the sightseeing and everything was the first ten days. On the eleventh day, we were in Banalek, absolutely charming little town of four or five thousand people or so. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's about uh, twenty-five miles or so uh, from the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, but I had gone to Banalek. Has anybody ever been to Galax, Virginia? I, going to banalex is like going to Galax. I mean, it's just out there by itself. Uh, it's filled with farmers and bakers and cafe owners and that sort of thing. It's not a commuter uh, city. They, they don't hop on the train to go to Paris. It's just kind of self-sustaining. And we got a real taste of what living in France was like. We stayed in a manor house uh, that was built in the 14th and 15th centuries. Uh, A large place used to sit on an estate, uh, had two outbuildings to it, but a very large house. We had a private part. Um, uh, Our part had a very comfortable living room. Uh, There were three bedrooms, three bathrooms, so we had a lot of privacy. We had a lot of space to ourselves. The place has been modernized. Uh, They've got heating grids in the floor. There's uh, a a very modern kitchen with uh, with a gas range and and uh, lighting and uh, all the conduits and everything and all the place looked like it was 15th century but it functioned like it was 21st century and uh, the comfort level was was just amazing now it was a good thing that it was comfortable because the weather was something else now this is a picture of one of the sunsets and every now and then uh, once or twice a week the, the sky would just light up like it was on fire And it's beautiful, and it's stunning. That is uh, what we photographers would call an unretouched picture that hasn't been uh, uh, emphasized, it hasn't been magnified. That's what the sky looked like right there. Uh, And it looks like that because there's a lot of moisture in the sky. It rained all the time. And when it wasn't raining, it was overcast. So when you see pictures of our time in France and there's a blue sky, it's because we looked out the window and went, blue sky, take pictures. <laughs> we don't know how long it's going to last. And uh, so it, it, was, it was a very wet climate, but it was very mild. Uh, it never got too hot during the day and it never not got too cold during the night. Uh, Banalek and, and Brittany are about the same latitude as Vermont, but the climate is like California. So we're surrounded by palm trees and tropical plants. Uh, They don't understand freeze, because it doesn't freeze there very often at all, but they don't understand a lot of heat because it never gets too much beyond 82, 83 degrees or so. It's just that they've got a lot of rain. There was so much rain. You know, we used to walk into the village every day uh, and get bread, I'll tell you about that in a second, Uh, but it it got to the point where if we hadn't gone into the village to get bread or groceries and it was raining out, it didn't really matter. You just put on a hat and a rain slicker and you walked into the village. When you got into the village, everybody in the village is walking around in hats and rain slickers because it's always raining. You can't let it stop you. So the weather was kind of interesting. It wasn't what we anticipated, but because of it, we spent a lot of time inside. And it was fine. It, 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 matter of fact, it was fantastic. It just it just created a, a, a little uh, cocoon uh, for us to exist in where we could just spend time together. And it was like the more time we spent together, the sweeter it got. So we, we, we visited a lot of small towns, a lot of little villages that were close by. Uh, they were interesting. Because we were close to um, the shore... Uh, Almost all the villages are built on a river uh, or a very large stream, and and almost all of them are ports. And Because this isn't a mountainous area, it's very flat and very level, Uh, even 20 or 25 miles inland, the tide has an effect on the water in the village. That right there is a little artist colony called Pantavan, um, filled with artist galleries, uh, the... uh, uh, little cafes and shops and everything but there's a port and when we got to town at nine o'clock in the morning that picture in the upper left of those boats sitting in the mud uh, was what we saw when we got out of our car we went into town and we walked along the shops we had an espresso we 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 had a baguette for lunch Uh, we got back to our car at one or two o'clock and the other picture is what it looked like at one or two o'clock all the boats are floating and everybody who owns a boat ran out and got in their boat and motored around for a while. They had excursions that took the river down out to the sea. And so there, there were actually tour boats going up and down that. And they would run for six or eight hours or so until the water level started dropping. And then the boats would sit down on the bottom. Well, there were a number of ports like that. And it, it just freaked me out the first couple times I saw this. All those boats are sitting on the ground. Yeah, it'll be okay. What do the owners do? Oh, they'll be here in a couple of hours. What are you talking about? And the next thing you know, everything's floating around. So, you know, sites like that, we just don't see around here. So there, there were, in every small village and town, there was a church in the middle of the town. Everyone, didn't matter how big the town was, there was a church in the middle of every town. Usually a Catholic church. And sadly, uh, I mean, all these churches are built, in again, in the 14th and 15th century, uh, a lot of them were empty. I, I, I mean, they kept on telling us that the problem they have is they've got plenty of churches. They don't have very many priests. They don't have very many pastors, and the churches lie dormant. Some of them are open. You can walk inside and take a look at them. You know, by the time we walked around and and took pictures of our seventh or eighth churches, I'd like I'm going to stay in the car. It's just another church. You know, they're all beautiful. They've all got big spires. They've all got ornate uh, um, ornamentation on the outside. They're all absolutely stunningly beautiful inside, but they all look the same, and they're all empty. And it was just something that kind of grieved us, that there was once a very robust faith in that region, and it seems to be a bit dormant. One side trip we took, the only side trip we took, uh, we went up to Normandy, about a five-hour car drive from where we were, um, and on the way up there, we stopped at a place called Mont Saint-Michel. Uh, Mont Saint-Michel is an island fortress um, built around an abbey. Um, and it's another one of these places that at high tide, they're isolated by the water. At low tide, they're isolated by the incredible amount of mud around there. Um, but it's, it, it, this abbey's built on the top of this small mountain island. Uh, surrounded by a wall, and there's a little village inside, an absolutely stunningly beautiful place uh, from all perspectives, outside, inside. Um, Kelly was convinced that it was the template for Disneyland, and I'm not so sure that she's she's not right. It looked like the village in in, in Disneyland, so our time there was pretty neat. From there, we went to Omaha Beach, and this is where it got a little emotional for me. Uh, my dad was in World War II. He landed on Omaha Beach on D-Day. Um, uh, I, dad never really talked a lot about the war to me. He, he actually avoided talking about it. But when I was 10 years old, he took me to see a movie called The Longest Day. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But it's about D-Day. And when we got out of that movie, Dad talked about his time at the war. He talked about being in one of those... LRVs, one of those landing vehicles, and how they packed them in there and uh, how that landing vehicle faced the beach. And when it got into the shallow water, the ramp fell. And their job was to run down the ramp and across the beach and climb the hills and take the fortifications. And, you know, my, my, dad, uh, my dad was a, uh, an incredible man. Um, and we had an incredible relationship. But Dad could be volatile, and I never understood why. Well, I'll tell you something. I got to Mo- Omaha Beach, and I looked at the size of that beach, and I went to the edge of the water and turned around at low tide when they landed, and it's about a football field. And I thought, nobody could survive this. This is an impossible thing. And all of a sudden I had this connection with my dad because I'd seen what he had gone through. And all I could think was the grace of God delivered my dad to the other side of that beach and up those hills so that he could become my dad. So that I could hear the gospel and share it with my dad before he died and he would come to the Lord and it's one of those things that would just drive you to your knees and go God is so awesome I I can't even comprehend how awesome he is and all of a sudden I understood my dad far better than I had ever understood him while he was alive dad got a bronze star that day Um, he got wounded He got a purple heart. They patched him up and sent him back. Uh, Then he got wounded again in the Battle of the Bulge. He got a silver star there. He would never tell me why he got the medals. He said, you don't want to hear it. So, Omaha Beach was just... From that, we went to the cemetery, the American Cemetery at Omaha Beach. 10,000 graves for the 10,000 soldiers that that died on d-day in those beaches Uh, and i'll tell you something uh, i've always had a high regard for our veterans uh, but this veterans day means a lot more to me after standing in that cemetery if you've served in the military would you stand up please god bless you guys god bless you thank you Thank you so much. After seeing all of, and walking through those museums and realizing what so many of you have gone through so that we could meet here at a time like this, all I can say is, is thank you so much. So the, the cemetery was beautiful. It was poignant. Um, it was another one of those things when you see the gravestones, You got the sacrifices that were made were just incredible. So there were, there, there were, you know, there were beautiful moments like that. There were some things that we never got used to. One of them was the toilets. Let me tell you something. When, when they say public toilet in Europe, they're talking about a public toilet, okay? That picture to the left is the men's toilet taking from the sidewalk in the main street going through Marie-San-Iglise. And and so it's serious business. The, the, we, we were in another place that was kind of like that. It had a privacy wall about this high. And I, I had to use the facilities. I'm like, Look, there's no privacy. And there's a sidewalk right here. And it's filled with people. And I'm... Uh, and I'm I'm thinking, what well, what am I going to do? I, and and somebody walks by and looks at me and goes Bonjour. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I can't handle this. <laughs> you know, uh, the second picture is the ladies' toilet. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something. There's a learning curve here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kelly called it the squatty potty. Uh, you know, the we never got used to that. Some of the things we did get used to was the boulangeries, uh, they're bakeries. They sell bread. Uh, all of them have baguettes, they've got croissants, they've got art, art, artisanal breads, but they've got desserts. The desserts are kind of the second show, uh, but the breads are absolutely incredible. Um, they're light, they're airy, uh, there's no sugar in them. Uh, there's no preservatives. They were incredibly delicious. You would buy a baguette. It's about this long, about that wide or so. It was a euro, about a seventeen at the exchange rate when we left. It was good for a day. You know, if you tried to stretch it to a day and a half, it started getting old. It, too much longer than that, it was duck food uh, because there's just no preservatives in it. And you would go to the boulangerie and buy your baguette in the morning and maybe have some cheese and, and uh, maybe some, we would call it prosciutto, but they call it jambon. Uh, or some sliced turkey, which which they call dinda. And that would kind of be your lunch uh, with some water to wash it down. A lot of times if we wanted to spend the afternoon out, we'd get a baguette and some cheese and throw it in the car in a bag and just take it with us and then sit on a bench somewhere if it wasn't raining. Uh, and and have our lunch. So it was very simple. The boulangeries were just absolutely fabulous. They were inexpensive. And and because we had to learn how to eat a little bit differently, when we went out to eat, we would order one meal and split it. Uh, and, and, you know, generally it was filling enough that kind of kept everything within the budget. We didn't, didn't do it because uh, we, we, we couldn't afford it. We did it because it was a smart way to eat because that way you kind of make up for the baguette you had in the morning and maybe sometimes you had a dessert every now and then. But the boulangeries were just absolutely fabulous and, and, and we got used to them. The other thing that we got used to were sidewalk cafes. So every village that was over like a thousand people or so would have two or three sidewalk cafes. Everything shut down at 12.30. The whole country comes to a stop. And it stays that way until about 2.30 or so. This is a European, Mideastern thing. And the only thing that stays open were the cafes. And people would sit in the cafes and have a a latte or an espresso or a cafe au lait and just kind of be part of the community. So we really got used to sidewalk cafes. It all had awnings, so if it was raining, you could hang out for the afternoon and spend a couple hours, and people would move from table to table talking to each other, and we got to know some people like that. A lot of sign language and misunderstandings, but we got to know a lot of people, and the people in the towns were absolutely incredible. Um, so we, we'd been there for a couple of days, and our host came over to us and said, There's a festival in town. You need to go into town. I said, Oh, what's the festival for? He goes, It's a festival. You need to go into town and see the festival. We're going down later on. And I went, well, well, we walked into town, and what, it, it, it was just a festival. There were vendors open up, they're selling ice cream, they're selling crepes, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're selling sodas and that sort of thing. Uh, that picture right there was taken in front of the main church in the middle of town, the Catholic church, and they were doing ballroom dancing, they were doing instructions, and there were, there were a couple hundred people that gathered there. There were, you know, in a town of about 4,000 to 5,000 people, there were probably 3,000 people there in the middle of town. So a block and a half from there in front of a creperie uh, was a band doing traditional Breton music, m- music from Brittany, and they were doing traditional Breton dancing. And another half block and a half from that one was another cafe where they were doing line dancing and rap. And the whole town is just out there dancing in the street. I thought, wow, this is pretty fantastic. How often do you do this? Well, we do it at least once a month. Once a month, the whole community comes together. And it's just such a sweet, sweet spirit. Now, we were able to do a lot of this stuff because this is what our schedule looked like. <laughs> we, had, we had no schedule. And and uh, we, were, we were very purposeful in arranging it that way. We would literally get up in the morning and say, what do you want to do today? And if we hadn't decided by noon... <laughs> then we probably didn't do anything. Uh, So uh, the the day we went for Normandy, I got up in the morning and Kelly had gotten up a little bit early and I said, what do you wanna do? She goes, well, when are we gonna go to Normandy? Five hour car ride. And I said, well, do you wanna go today? She said, can we? I said, yeah, let's pack a few things and we'll go. And we're off to Normandy. So we had this wide open schedule which allowed us to get the rest that we thought we needed, the rest that we hungered for, but it also allowed for a lot of quiet time, allowed for a lot of long talks in the middle of the afternoon, allowed for a lot of long walks early in the evening. It allowed us to to pray and to talk, and And one of the things that we did that I found very enriching was we went through Tim Keller's book on prayer. Uh, now, I've, I've, uh, read a lot of books on prayer. Uh, I like Tim Keller. I've got to tell you something. I think this is the best book Tim has written. Um, it, it's not just a book on prayer. It's a book on appropriating prayer, on incorporating prayer in your daily life. And I've got to tell you something. It challenged me. It challenged me deeply about how we read Scripture, uh, how we incorporate it into our prayer, and how our day moves. Well, I'll be talking more about that. Um, I'll probably put together a class going through the book to pick up after the poll trip thing in, in February. But I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I loved what Tim had to say. And I have struggled to begin incorporating these things. It the calls for me. I, and well, well, let me just share this with you. I, I, when I get up in the morning, uh, I'm eager to get my day started. Anybody like that? Uh, so I can fill the first 15 minutes of my day with a lot of busy work. Check email. Check my schedule. Check the weather. Check this. Check that. Um, and what Keller proposes you do is start your day with scripture and prayer. It takes some discipline, but I got to tell you something: it it works. It's a great way to start the day. He recommends you start the day with prayer, uh, thanking God for getting you through the night. You end the day in prayer, thanking Him for getting you through the day. Uh, so. Uh, the idea that the very first thing I'm going to do is put the Word of God in my mind. And the next thing I'm going to do is say, how does this speak to me? What, what does it say about my situation right here? Not what it says about my wife or somebody I'm struggling with or the political climate or whatever. What is this saying to me? What, what is God working on in my heart? And taking 20 minutes to go through that process and ending up with whatever your daily prayer is, it, it for me it's just been an enriching time, and uh, we had time to work our way through that. We had time to read that book and and discuss uh, what impact it was having on our hearts. Now we love that, and that's one of the major things we come home with. Um, that kind of brought us up to the end of the trip. Um, we were going to take a train from Benelec to Paris. Um, but we decided to rent a car. The train was going to be 250 bucks. The car was $11 a day. Uh, and you, when you rent a car over there, they assume that you drive stick shift. They, they don't even ask. You have to request an automatic. And the real catch on that is there are so few automatics in the rental fleet, there are so few automatics out on the street that if you want one, they have to go find one for you, and instead of $11 a day, it's 50 because they they just don't have a, a requirement for these, so we rented a car for eleven dollars a day and headed towards Paris. We wanted to see some chateaux in the Loire River Valley, so we went to a village called Blois. Yeah, B L O I S, Blois, and uh, we we got there kind of late, and uh, I mean th- th- this was indicative of what what happened on the entire trip for us. We we got there kind of late. We checked in at the hotel. We went and got some dinner, and after dinner, Kelly said, well, let's walk through town. It was a warm evening. So we started walking through. It's an ancient town, uh, narrow uh, streets, cobblestone walkways, lit up by gas lanterns. It's just, it, it looks like something out of the medieval times. And we had been walking the streets for about 20, 25 minutes, and Kelly turned to me and she goes, we're by ourselves. There's nobody on the street and i think you're right and she said it's it's like magic she said it's like we're the only two people in the world we were standing there holding hands i'm like oh my gosh you know and so we just stopped and thanked the lord for a moment and then we took a few steps we went around a corner and the most incredible thing happened around the corner was this stairway it was huge maybe 200 steps uh maybe 25 yards wide, and it, it went down and led into the center of town, and we, we couldn't hear anything when we were standing there. When we walked around the corner, in the center of town, there's a band playing, and there's maybe a couple hundred, four, five hundred people dancing and sitting around and having beverages and talking and mingling with each other, and it was like, boom, all of a sudden, there's all this life around us. Kelly said, we got to go down and see what's going on. So we walked down the steps. We spent about a half hour, 40 minutes, walking among those people, listening to the band, just kind of drinking in the evening. And I uh, said, well, we, we probably need to head back. We walked up the steps, turned the corner, and we were by ourselves again. <laughs> it was like this little gift that God had given us, saying this is what this sabbatical has been about. You know, when I went to Greece in 2010... I came back with a very clear vision for the church and the ministry. This time I came back edified and strengthened in my relationship with my wife. Uh, This was intensely personal. It was intensely spiritual for me. Um, And it came at a time where I was far more tired than I realized. Uh, God just gave us his gift of rest and managed to draw us deeper at the same time. So we spent the evening in Blois, in the Loire River Valley. The next morning we went to the Chateau du Chambord, uh, one of the more famous chateaus in the Loire River. There are 87 chateaus in this small region in France, and we got a chance to tour that absolutely magnificent place. We were there for three or four hours or so. And we headed to Paris, and our last... The last three days we had in Paris, we, we, we decided that we weren't going to uh, do the sightseeing thing. We were just going to enjoy the streets of Paris. And we, we walked up and down the streets. We walked up and down the Seine River. Uh, we sat in the cafes. Uh, we talked to people. And we just kind of uh, enjoyed the city for three days before we got on a plane and came home on November 1st. So, the trip was it was incredible it was practical with the sights that we saw for me it was about spiritual discipline it was about structuring my day realizing that if I want to be a pastor to you and I want you to be healthy and believe me that is my prayer every day that you as a member of this congregation, are nourished and edified and growing in your faith, I realize I have to be healthy. I have to be nourished and edified and growing in my faith. I'll never ask you to do something that I wouldn't do myself. And this is where God worked in my heart. And uh, as we listened to Scott's excellent series on psalms, I, I hope you guys were as blessed as I was in hearing the preaching that came out of this pulpit while I was gone. And, and I'm working my way through uh, Tim Keller's book. I decided to, to read the psalms. It's my morning reading, one psalm. And when something jumps off the page, I, I would highlight it. And, and then I would pray through that. God, what are you saying to me through this highlight? And it's incredible because for the first nine Psalms, what kept on jumping off the page was trust in the Lord. And so, uh, you know, I, I enjoy telling you to trust in the Lord. Okay. What I found is I I don't always trust in the Lord myself. You know, I, those of you that know me know I've got a strong personality. I'm an A-type. I trust in myself very frequently. Uh, and there are times when I spiritually say, that's okay, God, I got it. I know you got a lot to do. I got this, okay? And and, and I don't have that trust. Now, the, the other word that kept on popping up out of these Psalms is refuge. So, I realize that sometimes I struggle with trusting the Lord and taking my refuge in Him, finding my rest in Him, so, and when, you know, when my frustration starts to build with the things that are going on around me, I'm not taking rest in anybody. And I'm really not acknowledging that God is sovereign over the situation. And as we discussed in Sunday school, that, that he means some goodness situation for me. Sometimes it doesn't feel very good, but he means some good. What do I do about this? Well, I'm, I'm that guy that's going to take the steering wheel and start steering things and make sure that they go right. And, and so I lose that the... The comfort of trusting in the Lord, I lose the rest of uh, being under His wing and seeing Him as my refuge. So, as we're processing everything that happened, this is one of the main things: what is the Lord doing in my heart? And and that came from spending that 20 minutes at the beginning of the day before I do anything else, and saying, Lord, I'm going to turn my eyes to you. Now, now, I'm not telling you this because I'm a spiritual giant. I'm telling you this because i got lessons I need to learn. And I'm at the point right now where I need that 20 minutes so desperately that I'll get up early so that I can have it. So, trust in him. Take refuge in him. We learned a lesson about living in a foreign land. <laughs> we had a temporary home there. It was a comfortable home. It was a tremendous blessing. It was a sanctuary. But there were these constant reminders that it wasn't our home. Constant reminders that we were visitors. We couldn't understand the road signs. We didn't even know when to say goodnight. Good night. constant reminder that we had these tickets that were our guaranteed way home. And that it was coming, and we were sure it was coming because we had the tangible evidence of the tickets. Now you see where I'm going with this, okay? It, it, all, all this made me think about what I was reading in the scriptures and, and how we as the body of Christ are visitors here on this world. We don't always understand the language. We don't always understand the culture. We don't always understand the rules of the road. As a matter of fact, if we do understand them too much, we probably need to reassess our situation a little bit. Maybe we shouldn't understand it that deeply. We are believers who are aliens living in an alien land. Isn't that what Scripture tells us? Aliens in a strange land? This is not our home. This is temporary. We have a home to go to. We have an eternal home to go to. Now the question that that should linger in your hearts is what's lingering in mine right now. Are you homesick for that home? Do you want to be there more than you want to be here? Or would you rather be here? See, that's what I'm struggling with. Because here, I can trust in myself. Here, I don't need a refuge. I've got control of things. I can delude myself just as well as any one of you can. (laughs) Am I homesick for my eternal home? I want want you to turn to John 14, the passage that we read. And understand the context here. The disciples have heard some very disturbing news. Uh, Jesus is going away. Uh, One of them is going to betray him. Uh, Another one is going to deny him. And and, and and so Jesus turns to them and and he can see that he's given them tough news that they're struggling with this and and he looks at me and he says let not your heart be troubled believe in God believe also in me now there's a veiled reference that if you believe in God you believe in me so Jesus is giving a little bit of a theological lesson there as well but if you take a look at John 14:1 through 14 you're going to see the word believe eight times so this whole passage is about believing what Christ says. So I said, believe in God, believe in me. Don't let this news upset you. Why shouldn't it upset them? Jesus says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now let me explain something that's happening here. Jesus is speaking to the Jews the traditional language of betrothal. You see, the way a Jew got married back in the first century was he would go to his father and say, I I, I think I'm ready to get married. And the dad would go, okay, come with me. And they'd go walking across town, walk into the house where there was a young girl. And the father would say to the father of the young girl, my son wants to marry your daughter. They would make an agreement They would would sign that with a gift between each other and then the father and son would leave and he would take the son home and he would designate an area for the son and his bride to live in and the son would begin building a home for them. Now when the home was done, the father and the son would go back across town and he would collect his bride. There would be a ceremony and the marriage would be sealed. Okay, so you and I, because of the culture we're in, see that period between the agreement and the wedding ceremony as the what? Engagement, right? I just did a wedding for Curtis and Emily. They got engaged before they got married. Here's the problem. In our culture, the engagement is kind of a test to see if you get along. If you survive the engagement, you get married. (laughs) In the Jewish culture, that's not how it works if you wanted to break a betrothal vow, you had to get divorced. The betrothal vow to a Jew is irrevocable and binding. So when Jesus says, don't worry about what's going to happen, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's giving them an irrevocable, binding promise. And it's coming from the mouth of God himself who is trustworthy and faithful to do what he says he's going to do. So Jesus says, don't worry about what's going to happen. I'm betrothing myself to you. And you know what that means. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 3, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. He said, we're going to be together. It's already a done deal. My father has ratified this and he sent me as the gift to prove to you I'm about to sacrifice myself to show you how serious I am about this. And then he says, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas in the next verse goes, no, we don't. We, we, we don't. Where's the house? Where, where are you preparing this? You know what Thomas is looking for? Thomas is looking for an address. He's saying, wait, where do we go? How are we going to find you? He's looking for a road map. Thomas is saying, I need to plug this into my GPS so that when the time comes, I don't miss it. Okay? Jesus says, I'm the way. He says, I'm the way. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And what Jesus is telling Thomas is, there's no road map it's not an address the way is a person the way is a person the way to the father is a person it's me the promise is as good as the father is and I and the father are one huh. and then he said I, I mean he makes it clear he said you know before you thought you knew the father now, if you've met me, you've met the Father. So the things I'm saying to you come from the mouth and the heart of God. You see, those disciples had a home. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's not saying, No, this is not Jesus up in heaven with a hammer and some nails in his mouth. It's almost done, don't worry. He's saying, literally what he's saying is the reason I'm leaving is so that the place will be prepared for you. And you don't have to worry about this because you read a little bit further in the chapter. He says, you don't have to worry about this. I know you guys are upset. I know you heard some bad news. Really bad news for Judas. (laughs) But not so bad for Peter. Okay, Because I'm preparing a place for you. And you're going to be there with me. So it, it's, not, it's not that we're waiting for him to finish. It's that it's already done. The, the, the deal is already sealed. Our home is already there. And when he comes back, he's going to take us there. Why? Because where we are right now is temporary. This is the foreign land. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have repented of your sins, received him as Lord of your life, then you're going to that new home. Now, if that does not get you through whatever you're going through right now, if that reality, that a promise has been made by God and that he's coming back to take you home. See, the, the evidence, yet, yet, we don't have to do this ourselves. Why? He sent the helper. I'm going away. I'm going to send a helper to get you through this. It's our return ticket. It's the helper. It's the guarantee that we're going back. If that doesn't get you through whatever you're going through now, you need to go through the process that the Lord's putting me through. Do I really trust Him? Do I find my rest in Him? Or do I need to do some heart work and submit to Him? How do we submit to Him? You know what? We hear it over and over and over again. We make Him the highest priority. We make Him the highest priority. What does that look like? What is that look? At? How do I make Him the highest priority? How do I make God the highest priority in my life when I've got so much going on around me? I start my day with it. <laughs> I just say, you know, Lord, before I do anything, I'm going to look to You. You are my strength. You are my refuge. You, and only You I can trust. And for these first 20 minutes... I'm going to focus on you. Thank you for getting me through the night. And then before I lay my head on the pillow, I'm going to spend five minutes saying, Thank you for getting me through the day. You got to start somewhere. The struggle is great. We can be overwhelmed by our situation. We got off the plane. Many of you know Kelly's mother is down in Orlando and struggling. And it is a huge battle. She's been diagnosed with dementia, and it's not dementia. And Kelly's down there now. So as deep as God took us, as close together as he brought us, immediately afterwards he separated us. And i got to tell you something. It's, it's God just saying, do you believe that I took you deeper? Or was that just something that happened in France? <laughs> And so I I have to trust him with my wife. (laughs) She has to trust him that we were together and now we're separated. We don't know how long she's going to be in Orlando. Matter of fact, we're so unsure of how long she's going to be in Orlando, we bought her a one-way ticket. Because she'd like to be home in two weeks, but I got a note from her this morning saying, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe you need to think about coming down here in a couple weeks and spending a couple days. So God will test you on this. And what am I going to do tomorrow? I'm going to get up in the morning and do the best I can to put my focus on the Lord. I want to trust in Him. But you know what? Sometimes that's work. I want to find my rest in Him. And sometimes that's even greater work. Because I'm a doer. I'm a doer. God says, let me handle it. He can handle my salvation. He can handle getting me from here to my new home. Do I think he can handle my mother-in-law? Does he can't be a better protector for my wife than I am? Starts first thing in the morning, guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the magnificent God that you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over every situation in our lives. But drive us to a point that where we're dependent upon you. Oh Lord, give us strength to depend upon you. Lord, we have faith. We believe, help our unbelief, Father, that we might grow in our dependence and our rest in You. That You might draw us unto You. That You would equip us, Father, and give us rest in You, Father. Our hearts cry for Your peace, the peace that goes beyond understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.